Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura, that's A-U-R-A, to get started today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. Gavin? What's up? What do we got going on today? Uh, Anything? Or well, I, I, stole, uh, I stole a drink from you. Oh. Or Mo looks, or somebody. Yeah, that looks absolutely terrible, so you can drink all that you want. I... I like he makes it a point yeah. to open it near the microphone so yeah. everybody can hear that. I hope you that. can hear that. Just so you know, he's only drinking a LaCroix water, which is just disgusting. Sorry to anybody that likes LaCroix water. No, you're right. It is. It's not, it's not great. <laughs> Sorry, LaCroix. There's another orange beverage that uh, that he has sometimes I actually really like, but uh, no. LaCroix, but this isn't it. This isn't it. LaCroix <laughs> is not good. But on to the mafia. Not a sponsor. (laughs) Uh, On to the mafia subject. Yes. What are we talking about today? We're back on a timeline, I think, right? We are back on the timeline. So today we're in like 61, 62. We're in that. Ooh, we're crossing into 62. A little little bit. A little bit of, you know, (laughs) don't think it's going to be a habit, but uh, yeah. So who is this mafia member we're discussing today? So today we're going to talk about uh, Thomas Sorcy. And uh, someone's going to say, like, that's not how you say his name. But I'm pretty sure, pretty sure I have this one right. And he, he's just a gambler. That's all this guy is. He's not a thief. He's not a killer. He's nothing of the sort. He's just a gambler. That's it, all he is. Is he an actual mafia member or is he just somebody that worked for... Well, it's, it's iffy. If I had to say one way or the other, I would say no. But you're you're gonna hear that there's there's some some maybe some maybe about it. All right. Well, without further ado, let's uh, hear this story. Yeah. So this is not <laughs> just just so people know right up front. This is not the most exciting story, but we're gonna use it as an example of what it what the FBI was like, how they treated gamblers in the early '60s. So think of this as a, as an example. You have me worried because it looks like you're holding five sheets of paper in your hand. I am holding five sheets of paper. With, which, for a very unexciting story. <laughs> I'm going to breeze through it as quickly as I can. I My notes were seven pages. I got them down to five. I wanted to get them down to four, but I didn't get them down. But I'm going to breeze through this as quick as possible. All right. Okay. So we got Thomas Sorcy, uh, born in Milwaukee, 1907. Um, his family came from a place in Sicily, and this I probably will butcher, Altavia Milicia, or Milicia, so... Yeah, that sounds like a really bad pronunciation. Yeah. I'm not going to try to tell you how to pronounce it, but it doesn't yeah. sound like you did it right. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I didn't. I'm sure I didn't. But anyway, the point of me, I would I would typically just ignore it. If I couldn't say it, I would just ignore it. But I bring it up just because I want to point out that even though he's Milwaukee Sicilian, he's not from one of the main places the Milwaukee Sicilians are known to be from, like Santa Flavia or, or Pritzi. So he's not part of like the mainstream. So this there. is this is our first indication that he might not be from the mafia. Correct, correct. 
Uh, as a young man, he briefly is married to a, a woman named Rose. Uh, they divorce just a couple months later, so that didn't work out. He then marries his second wife. Uh, that seems to go much better. Uh, they met each other while they were neighbors in West Dallas. Like, they lived practically across the street, and then they got married. So that's nice. Girl next door. Uh, they have a son. His name is also Thomas Sorcy. In fact, they had twins. There was a boy and a girl, but the girl died at birth. So they just have this one son. Now, in 1940, in the census, Sorcy is listed as working as a better for a commission. And I have no clue what that means. So uh, I don't think it means like a better, like a gambling better. But I don't know what a better would be. Yeah. So a... it's a very strange job description on the census. But but on a census, can't you essentially write anything? You can write anything. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, he's probably just trying to come up with a good name for uh, what he does. Yeah. Could be. <laughs> I, I don't know. And maybe I just, maybe the handwriting is that bad. That's the best you can get out of it. But anyway, 1948, he's arrested for assault and battery, and the charges are quickly dismissed. In fact, this is the only time he'll ever be arrested in his entire life. Ooh. And, you know, didn't even go anywhere. Between 1954 and 1959, he tells the state tax officials that he's self-employed. He says, I'm self-employed as a dice and cards man meaning that he plays dice and cards, his annual income would fluctuate between $10,000 and $14,000. And I did the math on this one. Okay. On the low end, that would be $100,000 a year. Wow. So even on a bad gambling year, he made $100,000. Pretty good. April 1958, he's seen multiple times with Phil Valley, who is the business agent for the Hotel and Restaurant Employees Union. This is significant because Phil Valley is definitely a mob kind of guy. Uh, in fact, during the same time that he told the state that he was a Dyson Cards man, he told the local credit bureau that he was a public relations man for the union, earning $5,000 a year. I don't know if that was true or if that's something that he told them just to have something on his credit <laughs> Legit, record yeah. besides, a, besides a gambler, but he's definitely a close friend with the... With the hotel union. 1961. So here we go. We're up to speed. In 1961, the FBI is cracking down hard on gambling. And I've probably said this in other podcasts, but just for people who, who you know, forgot or, or didn't listen to those. What happened is, is in 1961, the federal government, and specifically uh, Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, they were pushing for stricter gambling laws under the idea that gambling was where the mob made most of it, which is probably true. Several new laws were passed in 1961, and they all have like these convoluted names like Interstate Transportation of Wagering Information, which basically means you called somebody out of state and you placed a bet or you got information on how to bet. Or there's Interstate Gambling Business, which is really generic, mm -hmm. but, but whatever kind of a gambling operation you're running, it has some interstate element. Because being on the federal level, it has to cross state lines. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's not a federal crime. All right. So anyway, so of course, this guy is known as a gambler. In fact, in fact he's admitting to the state tax people. That's <laughs> that what he does. So it's not like it's a secret. So the FBI really looks into him hard. Um, they're talking to everybody. They're talking to police chief, even in Wapaka, of all places. They ask him, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Tommy comes up here sometimes, and 
He places bets uh, at the country club here, but it's all it's all friendly games. It's nothing, no big money. They search his phone records. In fact, they they love his phone records. They repeatedly <laughs> pull them, and they see everybody that he talks to. And I'm guessing the reason they're doing this is again to try to see if he's calling anybody out of state for placing bets. And he does. He talks to a number of people, like in Minnesota, a lot of a lot of friends and family in Minnesota. But one place he calls is Claude Lodel's, and I'm probably screwing that up, Lodel, Lodel, Claude Lodel's Oasis Tavern in Two Rivers. For some reason, he's friends with this guy in Two Rivers, and that place ends up getting raided, unconnected to him knowing Tom Sorcy, but, but it, it gets raided. And when it gets raided for having gambling games there, they find an envelope with Sorcy's name on it with money inside along with a money order made out to Sorcy's nephew. So it's definitely clear that he's been gambling at this Two Rivers club. Mm-hmm. And the guy in the guy in Two Rivers, uh, this hits him really hard. I mean, he, he pleads guilty, and he's like, we're not going to gamble anymore. He has to move the liquor license into his wife's name after that. And he's like, it's just, it's just me and my wife, man. Uh, I live in a back room of the bar. Like, we're not some big-time thing. Uh, but they crack down on him pretty hard, and they end up trying to figure out what his connections are to different places. And they find that he's getting like gambling information from a hotel in Manitowoc, and so they trace that. And they're like, "Okay, where's this place?" And this turns into this whole big ordeal of the FBI, like tracking who is gambling with who, trying to find out what's going on. And at the end of this whole Two Rivers Manitowoc stretch. They get nowhere. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if they got to spread state lines, that seems like they're going to be digging for a while before they get across yeah. the state line. Yeah. So, like, the, the Two Rivers Bar is getting these things called parlay cards, which is similar to what we would call, like, a football pool. Okay. And they're like, okay, where are you guys getting these from? They're getting it from some guy at a Manitowoc hotel. They go to the guy at the Manitowoc hotel. They finally get him to admit where he's getting them from and it turns out that somebody locally is just printing them so it doesn't even really leave manitowoc county but they were hoping that like these are getting shipped in from somewhere but so like hours and hours are spent trying to track down just these you know these loose gambling operations where people are betting five ten dollars which you know adds up but it's not this huge thing so something as simple as like a betting card being shipped across state lines could make it a federal end. Yes. Wow. Yes. All right. So rumors are going around about Tom Sorcy. They say, you know, they've heard rumors that he's been he's been a bookie, but nobody really seems to be able to prove it. They said his primary income is definitely from playing cards and dice. In fact, he travels around as far as Montana and Wyoming playing cards and dice, just making money. But this isn't an interstate violation because he's going to another state and he's playing the game in that in state. state okay so that that is not a, a federal crime it might be a local crime but most of the local police really don't care like the the federal government as hard as they're cracking down on gambling most people are still like we don't care <laughs> if guys are playing dice or poker or whatever we don't give a crap whatever it's fine rumors are going around again a lot of rumors that apparently Frank Bellstreet, here's where we go, Frank Bellstreet, mob boss in Milwaukee, is the money behind Tom Sorcy. Apparently, sometimes Bellstreet will hear about a big gambling game, and then he'll pay Tom Sorcy to go there, and then he'll get a percentage of the winnings for whatever he wins. Now, 
if that's true, there's your Bob connection. Mm -hmm. But we never, ever find out if that's true. Numerous rumors come up that there's some kind of financial backing to say, hey, go out, win some money, bring me back some money. But it's never proven. His phone records don't support this. So we just don't know. Uh, I, of course, have my doubts, but who knows? Another informant says, hey, Frank Balistrieri sent Tom Sorsi down to Antioch, Illinois, where there's a regular ongoing gambling game. That part's true. The purpose of him sending him there was to convince the boys, quote-unquote, boys in Antioch, to back a gambling game in the Milwaukee area. Whether or not that's happened, I don't know. So Seems like something. Why would he send Tom Sorsi? Maybe, I guess, maybe if he played in that game and had yeah. a relationship with those people or something yeah, like that. Yeah, maybe if he goes and plays there anyway, like, hey, talk to them about this. I don't know. They're checking his phone records, you know, and it's connected to various gamblers. They're finding it connected to gamblers in Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, even in Canada, of all places. Uh, some Connect to a guy in, in Madison, a man named James Schiavo. And I'm, now I screwed that up. Someone's going to be like, that's definitely not how you say that name. Um, but that is, they connected him to that. Here's an interesting thing that comes up. It's found out that he's close friends with people who are on the board of directors for both the Green Bay Packers and the Milwaukee Braves. So anytime he needs tickets to the Packers or the Braves, he calls up these guys and they give him tickets. And he'll often get tickets for other people as like gifts and, and things like that. So when they're going around and they're talking to these other gamblers in Minnesota and other states, oftentimes they're like, oh, yeah, he comes out all the time. We do a little bit of gambling, nothing big. And then he gives us some Green Bay Packers tickets. <laughs> so I, it's odd. Yeah, they, they follow along with the phone records. They find that he often calls his son. Not really surprising. Yeah. <laughs> but because he's got he calls his son so often, they do a background check into his son as well. His son is not involved in anything, but just being on this guy's phone call list gets you looked into. I do. <laughs> they look into guys in Peshtigo, get background checks on them, just all over the place. Uh they go, they trace a thing to uh, a bar in Shano called Stan and Bud's Tavern. Um, they're like, yep, we gamble here occasionally, but it's just like local bar gambling. <laughs> That's it. The only interesting thing about that is that Bud of Stan and Bud's Tavern, this man named Bud Hopped, who uh, back in 1932, so almost 30 years prior to them looking into it, uh, there was a murder of a high-ranking teamster just outside of his tavern. So uh, he was around when that happened. But it was not that he was he killed the guy. Just happened to be at that bar. <laughs> so loose loose connection there. They go to Canada. The FBI goes to Canada, talks to the people he calls in Canada, and they're like, Yep, we have card games here, we have dice games here. Not really a big deal. Nothing really is going on. Yeah, a lot of shady characters show up and play, but that's it. Just a card and dice <laughs> game. No one's really doing anything. Okay. So on and so forth. Uh his his phone records traced to a number of car dealerships in Wausau and Marshfield. And these car dealerships have these strange, you know, rumors about them, about them having questionable associates. And one guy used to who who owns one of these dealerships used to be a bootlegger. Ooh, <laughs> you know, like there's got these rumors. And apparently, even though they're in Wausau and Marshfield, a lot of their cars get sold out of state. 
Why this is bad, I don't know. Why this happens, it is I unu- don't know. It is unusual, though. It you is have, unu- to, have to admit that. It is unusual, but yeah, so the FBI is like, why are so many of their sales going out of state? Like, I don't know. It's not a crime. One of the calls from his uh, from his phone went to a dice manufacturer in Chicago called Hunt & Company. Hunt & Company was rumored to make cards that were used for cheating, cards that you could easily mark and you could cheat with. So they went to Hunt & Company, and Hunt & Company pulled their records, their sales records, and like, yep. We did sell some cards to Tom Sorcy, but guess what? The kind that we sold him were plastic cards, which are really hard to mark because they're plastic. <laughs> can't write on them. And not only that, these are the same brand of cards that we sell to you know stores all over the Midwest. So the ones he bought from us aren't special. He could have bought them down Anywhere. down the street. They're like, nope, he's not even cheating at cards. <laughs> <laughs> They go out to Minneapolis. They find that he's he's friends with a former boxer out there, a man named Punchy Finale. He's friends with various supper club owners who, again, they're all like, yep, we like to play cards and dice. So there's that. Keeps going on, talking to all these other guys. And they go to Hancock and Houghton, Michigan, <laughs> where he's got phone calls there. And they're like, yep, he does show up on occasion at the local Elks Club and does some gambling with the Elks Club here. But again, it's local gambling. It's just so they a bunch can't of old do... guys hanging out at the Elks Club. So they can't do anything about can't it. Can't do anything about that. They trace it to several people known to be gamblers in Mankato, Minnesota. Same story there. They trace it to a man named Robert Ombach in Green Bay, who's a mill worker at the Fort Howard Paper Company. He is very well known as a poker player in the Green Bay area. Uh, people are often seen to visit his house for poker games, including some high-profile businessmen. But again, it's just a poker game <laughs> in a guy's house. So again and again and again, more to this. And yeah, that's. I mean, it goes on like this. Every so often, again, a couple months go by and another person says, you got to look into Sourcey. He's financially backed by the mob. He's going to these games. He's winning money. He's bringing it back. He's paying the mob. And they're like, okay. So they keep looking into him, but every time they trace his phone calls, they find more gambling games, but it's always just a bunch of guys hanging out playing poker, which maybe he is. Maybe he's winning huge amounts of money and he's taking it home, but there's nothing involved. He's not placing bets over the phone. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, can't do anything about that. They catch wind of a mob craps game happening at... 1226 North Milwaukee Street. It happens three nights a week, and it's run by Harry D'Angelo and Mike Albano, who are both mob guys. So here we go. That part's correct, that there's a mob connection. The FBI is told that the games are actually funded by Tom Sorcy and another man named Wally Percenti, who I know nothing about, and they in turn are financially backed by Frank Balistrieri. This is not able to be proved. <laughs> we do not know. So the craps game, that's true. The guys running it are mob guys, but there's no proof that Tom Sorcy is funding it or that he's being funded by the mob to fund it. So And it's it seems to me like um it's just as likely that this guy was a mob member as it is that he was just a really good gambler and being a gambler you're gonna get wrapped up and involved with the mob. Because they're out there running all these gambling games, right? right? I mean, right. 
either either answer seems very very reasonable right and based on the evidence i mean i'm really trying to drive home the point here they are the fbi is going out of their way (laughs) to, to just look into everybody this guy knows and they're not finding anything. <laughs> so, like, this is how serious they took gambling, but it's not getting them anywhere. Do you know? So, I assume you've looked into other gamblers at some point. In time. Yes. What, the amount of money. So, this guy, you said that he was making between ten and fourteen thousand dollars, which was a hundred thousand to probably hundred sixty thousand dollars a week. Sure. Great money for a gambler. Yes. Other gamblers you've looked into, how do they compare to that? Or this guy is definitely making better money. He's making very good money. Like sometimes the the other kind of gambling, the kind of the FBI actually cares about. Um, like if you're a bookie, you might make better money. But as far as actual gamblers, like playing the games, playing the game, this guy's killing it. This guy is killing it. I mean, I I don't know if people know how gambling works, but more often than not, you lose, <laughs> lose. your ass. Like like. Gambling is called gambling for a reason. Like most people don't win. So But there are people out there that do yeah, <laughs> over yeah. and over again. Well, there's definitely so, professional yeah. gamblers out there. But like you can't win money unless a lot of people are losing money. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. So this guy is definitely an anomaly. September twenty eighth, nineteen sixty two. They've been looking into this guy over a year, almost two years at this point. The Milwaukee FBI office sends a memo to the headquarters in D.C. about Tom Sorsky. And they say, do you think we can prosecute this guy? Do you think we found anything? They said, no, we could we could go after him for, this is one of those new federal crimes, interstate transportation in aid of racketeering, gambling, the, using the gambling as interstate transportation in aid of racketeering. And if that sounds really convoluted, it is. <laughs> they said, well, he's traveling to other states to gamble, and this is probably helping racketeering, helping the mob. So there's that. They were of the opinion, the FBI was of the opinion, that this was possible if the evidence showed that the game has rose to the level of serious income and weren't just friendly, casual games. However, they weren't sure they could do that. So after discussing it with Washington, D.C., and you know the attorneys that would have to prosecute this, they decide, nope, and they shut down their case. They said, no, nope, we're closing our file on this guy. It'd be hard to prosecute him. Um, I mean, maybe if he was the organizer of these games, but just as a player, I don't know. So they shut down his file in November 19th. Then they reopen it. <laughs> Jesus. Then they reopen it. A couple months later, February 1963, they reverse course. They open the file back up based on new information. Now the information is that He's not just a gambler. He's a runner for the gamblers in Milwaukee. He's making collections and payoffs for other gamblers in St. Paul and Mankato, Minnesota. So now he is going across state lines. Mm. Bum, bum, bum. But let me guess. They research the hell out of this and find nothing. Right. <laughs> exactly right. They said, There's, we can't even back this up. We can't even back this up. Like the idea is that people in Minnesota are making calls to gamble in Milwaukee or people in Milwaukee are gambling over the phone in Minnesota and he's running the money back and forth. But they couldn't they couldn't back that. So after all this time researching him nonstop in nineteen sixty one, nineteen sixty two, and nineteen sixty three, 
They finally give up, and they decide that after looking into dozens of his friends and family and other gamblers, they're not going to do anything. So he goes on with the rest of his life, which actually isn't that long, because he only makes it to 19... or 1971 at age 63. So he doesn't live to be an old man. But I mean, it did just passes away of natural causes. Passes and... away of natural causes. So, again, I want to stress, I know this is not the most exciting episode. Nobody dies. It's not any big crimes. But just, like, I really want to drive this home. The FBI in 1961, 1962 were absolutely crazy about gambling. So, okay, so that was going to be one of my first questions was, this investigation, is this over the top for them? Or when you look at other investigations around the time, were they just hounding other people in the same way? They, this, is not, this is not unique, but it is probably a bit more excessive. So do you have a theory on why they were targeting this guy so much? Do you think it's yes. because he was, he was not quiet about the fact that his income came from the from gambling right right yeah i think there's a few factors here one it's clear that gambling is his primary income whereas most most of these guys who are gamblers aren't what you would call professional gambling you know they might gamble each week on a football game or something but like they don't rely on it for their income so that definitely uh, would catch their attention of course then there's these rumors of mob backing which i don't know that there's any truth to that but if they hear these rumors, they're going to follow up on them. Um, and it doesn't help his case, not that this is his fault, but it doesn't help his case that he does happen to be Sicilian. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. If too. he if he was not Sicilian and someone said, oh, yeah, this guy's a gambler. He's, you know, he knows these mob guys. They probably wouldn't look into him half as much. So um, that was working against him through no fault of his own. And then on top of that, I don't know, but I would suspect that the FBI is approaching this from the point of view where after they've invested so much time and resources into this... <laughs> they're, they're not giving up. They're not giving up. Yeah, it's like, at this point, we've done this much. we got to keep going until we find something, which is probably the, the wrong approach, but I, but I would not be surprised if that was the mindset, especially because it isn't like they hit dead ends. Like, they hit dead ends in the sense that they couldn't prosecute him, but every time they followed up, they did find more gambling games. So it wasn't like it, these were complete dead ends. It was like they were just dead ends in the sense that they weren't federal violations. I mean, it was. But they were finding quite a network of gamblers. Yeah, and it was quite clear that this man was out there constantly gambling. Right. They just couldn't find an instance where he actually did something they could do anything about. Exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I. I could see them thinking, you know, sooner or later, we're going to link him to a gambler who actually matters. And they just never really did. <laughs> it was everybody just had these house games and they couldn't do anything about that. That was a local police matter. And most of the local police didn't care. So the, the other big question I had was, so the most logical connection I can see to him, him and the mafia, other than the fact that he's just in the world of gambling, so they're going to cross paths, yeah. is the fact that possibly frank, frank balistrieri funded him possibly do you know of instances where the mafia or frank balistrieri actually funded somebody like this 
No. That was just going to gambling games no. and winning money? Okay. That's the thing. Like, the again, the other kind of gambling where somebody is a bookie and they're taking in money and paying money out. Yeah, the mob absolutely backed that up. Mm-hmm. But to pay somebody to travel and gamble and then bring back some of that money? No, I've, I don't know that. And not to say that it's it's never happened, but it would be a very unusual setup. Yeah, and, it, and I don't even know how you would quality control that, you know? Yeah, because how do you know that you're actually getting your fair cut yeah. or whatever? You give a guy a hundred bucks, he goes, he gambles. How do you know if he won or he lost? Like, who do you check up on? It, it didn't <laughs> yeah. know. He comes back, he's like, oh, I didn't win this time. And he pockets like $2,000. I have no idea how you would verify that. So it doesn't even make any sense to back a guy like that. I could see it happening though, because I if he just got he just got the that reputation, and I mean, as long as he was coming back and giving you more money than you gave yeah. him, I mean, it's a it's a win win for you, yeah. right? You I could know? I could see that, or you know, if it was local, if there was a regular craps game, poker game going on locally, and you sent him in like that, I could see. But yeah, unless unless he's consistently bringing you back money. I don't know what the motivation would be to be like, hey, go out to Minnesota, play some poker, and bring back some money. Like that seems like a real risk. Yeah, yeah, and it would make sense if they were like paying him to go into their own games and play it. Maybe that's what I'm because saying. Because then they could regulate it. Like right. they would know exactly. That's what, he what I'm saying. Everything. If there was like a local game and, yeah. and they knew the guys who were running it, then that that'd be like the ringer. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. be like, oh, you know, the house is going to win some money. And this guy's guy's going to win win some money, money. so we win two ways. Like, that I could see. That makes sense. And that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, interesting. But, yeah. So, I mean, I'm sorry. Like, again, this this didn't go anywhere, like, super interesting. But but I I think it's important to not only talk about the really wild mob figures and the wild crimes they commit. I think it's interesting to look into law enforcement as well. I find that angle equally as interesting so i hope other people do too because just just thinking about the huge amount of man hours they put into this you translate that into what they're getting paid to do this which comes back to tax dollars and i don't want to make a political point that's not i'm not that's not my intention here i'm not trying to make a political point but my thing is it's like think of what they wasted what they were getting paid to look into this and come up with nothing. And they wasted a lot of time and a yeah. lot of money on nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, but this was this is what was considered a top priority at the time. And that that would fade. I mean, it would take a while for it to fade because at least up through the 70s, they were still cracking down yeah. and it's pretty hard. But not as hard as they did originally. As soon as the law passed, it was the hardest. So the early 60s was like peak gambling crackdown time do you uh, did that hurt gambling at all like do you see like the mo- the mafia kind of get away from gambling after that date after that law was passed or mm. did it have really no effect on it i can't say it didn't hurt them it's definitely it's not helping you when your bookies are getting arrested um and then you know they come in and they steal the money well not steal that's the wrong word but when they you know take the money that that you've collected for gambling that's definitely not helping you. But they didn't stop because, I mean, as late as the late 70s, early 80s, the guys in Milwaukee were still getting busted for being bookies and things like that. So 
It's not like it went away. It didn't go away. Possibly slowed down. But probably it might have mo- slowed down. It probably was more underground. We'll we'll talk about this in upcoming episodes. But like in the early '60s, they had a place that they called the office. Like that was they had an official name for it. It was <laughs> the office, and it was an apartment they rented out, and people knew that you could call there and place bets. So it wasn't super secret, and. So, you know, the FBI would show up and they'd take pictures of people coming and going out of this apartment. And I'm guessing they got a little smarter about that going forward because from memory, I don't recall there being a designated place after the The office got shut down. You know, there might be certain bars you call, but that's less suspicious. You know, like, of course, people are going to be coming and going out of bars all day. That's normal. But just like one single apartment, kind of weird. And one more thing before we wrap this episode up that I just want to point out that I find interesting is, you know, we talked about the possibility that maybe the mob was bankrolling this guy to go gamble. But all the looking at his phone record, this guy's phone records, they did. And, you know, at this time, they're also looking at Frank's phone records on a constant basis. Never once did they make a connection where these two called each other. Right. So it seems no. highly unlikely that he was bankrolling them if they had never had any communication. Uh, I mean, not not impossible, but but absolutely. Like of the dozens of people who are on his phone record, not one of them, to my knowledge, was an actual mafia Mob- member. But yeah, I mean, there had to have been if this was happening. Yeah, he had to have been. And you're, we could look at it and say, well, yeah, but he was probably just knew to meet the guy at the bar at this right. play time or something like that. But I, I just feel like at some point in time, there would have to be a phone call made. And I agree with that. that I, I mean, the, the, the smart way to do it is is meeting in person. But the fact that not a single person called him or he called them is very unusual. unusual. Because even if he wouldn't, it wouldn't be unusual to him not calling Frank. That's not the strange part. But to not have one of Frank's guys even call, yeah, him. or something, yeah, yeah, like totally. So yeah, it's the the evidence of any real strong mob connection is not there. So unfortunately, so as, I, as I said in the very beginning, if I had to come down one way or the other based on the evidence I have, I don't think Tommy Sorcy was a mob guy. He was definitely looked into as though he was, but I don't think that he was. I I would agree with you. I think he was just happened to be a Sicilian that was really good at cards yeah. and got targeted because of that. So, <laughs> interesting. Well, do you got anything else you want to add to this one? Nope, not Before really. Before we wrap it up? Not really. I mean, we'll have future gambling episodes, um, but I'm pretty sure any other time we talk about gambling, it's going to involve some actual, like, big raids and stuff like that not just not just a guy going around playing poker (laughs) all right then we'll wrap this episode up and as always we're wrapping up the end of the year so we just want to give everybody one more thank you very much for the continued support oh yeah i don't know if either one of us would ever believe this thing would still be standing after two years i don't know how you feel about i'm actually i to be completely honest if you had asked me on episode one if we'd still be going two years later yeah, fifty-fifty at best. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's, I'm pleasantly surprised nice. with how well this has been going, and now you know. Now I look forward to it. It's a lot of fun. So. Yeah. So thank you all for making that happen. And as always, if you enjoy this podcast, 
Leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. We're going to really start pumping out the Patreon. So, so. Oh, yeah. We, we have a Patreon. You can find it at MilwaukeeMafia.com. Go check that out. You can get access to bonus content, free books, and even an opportunity to get on this podcast with us. So check that out. And Gavin, you want to hit them with your contact info? Yeah, I guess. If you're still listening at this point, <laughs> uh, you can reach out at MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com or just go to the website MilwaukeeMafia.com. Uh, I'm not even going to mention the Facebook anymore because I don't want you to contact me through Facebook, so don't do that. Um, I, I will find it eventually if you do, but just, just use the email. Come on. <laughs> MilwaukeeMafia at gmail.com. All right. That's it. That's Gavin's putting his fist down on that one. So we thank everybody for tuning in. We'll be back next week with the Patreon episode and two weeks with a new Mafia episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.